Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The Important Part. This is season three, and we are kicking it off with a theme around retail investors. Who better to talk to us about retail investors than Gunjan Banerjee? Gunjan Banerjee is the lead writer for the Wall Street Journal's live markets coverage. Gunjan helped lead the journal's award-winning coverage of retail investing and the meme stock mania that swept markets in 2021. Her work won the Gerald Loeb Award for Breaking News, the New York Press Club Award for National Business Reporting, and a front page award from the Newswomen's Club of New York. Her reporting on GameStop is also the basis for a Netflix documentary on The Frenzy. Let's get to the interview. Gunjan, thank you so much for joining me today. This is actually the first episode of season three of my podcast, and I am delighted that you are the one helping kick this all off. We're starting with a theme about the retail investor and who better to talk to us about the retail investor than somebody from the Wall Street Journal who writes about the retail investor all the time. So I would love for you to give our listeners a brief summary. What do you do on a daily basis? What are you passionate about? What do you love writing about? And talk about what's interested you most about the retail investor over the last couple of years. Thanks, Liz. I mean, this has been so much fun to cover for the Wall Street Journal. And I've written about you know, broader markets, stocks, bonds, derivatives, commodities. But the thing that really excites me the most is talking to individual investors and getting a sense of where they're investing, where they're putting their money. And I, I think I've spoken to, you know, obviously dozens, maybe hundreds of individual investors, especially the past few years. And it's just been fascinating to see the evolution um, as well as where they're putting their money right now. Absolutely. I mean, the force to be reckoned with, right? Coming out of COVID, during COVID, and then coming out of COVID. And that almost seems like now we've we've decided this is what the market is going to be. This is the participants have changed forever. And I want to get into some of that that history as well. But for people who aren't all that familiar, so we're going to use probably retail investor and individual investor interchangeably. We're talking about the same group. But what is the difference the big difference in your head between a a retail investor and an institutional investor? You know, it's so interesting because I've spoken to so many individual investors, spoken with so many institutional investors. And Liz, it really is tough to generalize, right? You have really, really good institutional investors and really bad ones (laughs) that consistently outperform. And the same holds true for for retail investors. You know, some are momentum-based, some are just buying and holding ETFs, passively investing. So it's, it's tough for me to generalize there. One main difference that people often think of, I think, is totally inaccurate. You know, this notion that retail traders are the dumb money, you know, in, institutional traders are the smart money. For some reason, that's a stereotype that's persisted for years. And in my reporting, I've learned it's just completely inaccurate. You know, I think two-thirds of active managers lag behind their benchmarks. At least they did the first three quarters of the year. It's pretty remarkable um, how badly many institutional stock pickers perform, yet they still have um, this title that they're the smart money. 
Yeah, you know, I think a couple of the things that come into play here between individuals and institutions, first of which is time horizon and individual investors, particularly today's individual investors, because we have so much information available to us every single minute, all day long, it can be a blessing and a curse. You've got all this information. It gives the illusion that you're supposed to do something with every single piece of information. And it's made us quite short-term when we think about just how we should run our own money. So just by the nature of that, individuals slash retail investors tend to be a little bit more short-term. And then you look at institutions, a lot of times those institutions are investing money for decades at a time. And they've got a time horizon that is almost infinite. I mean, you can think about a foundation, right? An endowment or a foundation. You've got a time horizon that goes on literally forever. And you have liabilities that you have to meet in the meantime. That makes for a completely different mindset. And I think that's Part of, you know, we continue to compare it, whether you call it smart money and dumb money or individual versus institutional. I'm not even sure that there is a, a good comparison anymore. I think that we just do things so much differently. It doesn't make one better or worse. It makes the objectives different. And your point is well taken about active managers. I mean, in periods where the broad index is, number one, driven by only a handful of stocks, but number two, you've got such a big divergence between things like growth and value stocks or such a big divergence between things like technology and energy that if you're an active manager and you're forced to maintain exposure to most things or diversified exposure, you're sort of set up for failure in that when you've got narrowly led markets and you've got all this dispersion between. What, what's your take? I guess now, now that I said that out loud, I talked myself into a new question. What is your take for an individual investor, whether they find passive investing more attractive, active investing more attractive? I think I probably know the answer to that, but, but their passion for one or the other, basically the optics around it for them. You know, in, in my experience, I'm seeing individual investors turn to both. You know, there's definitely a lot of interest in ETFs, but at least the past few years, I mean, think about meme stocks, think about the AI frenzy that's dominating this year. Um, people are trying to actively pick stocks, trade stocks, and and trying to, you know, notch really, really big wins. Um, to your point, though, about how how quickly things move. I think a lot of investors these days are trying to pick up momentum, whether it's on like an intraday basis or or ride the momentum into like, say, NVIDIA earnings higher over the next week or so. So I'm seeing a pretty healthy mix of both. Although it did seem like last year when stocks were, were doing terribly, it did seem like we had a big risk off in terms of like individual stock trading, where it was significantly off the highs from the prior year. And maybe people were, were trying to play it safer and, and going into ETFs. Yeah. So you mentioned meme stocks. I think that's one of the most obvious ways that individual investors have affected the market over the last couple of years. I think we all remember the meme stock craze of AMC and GameStop and, and the original memers. Apparently there's new meme <laughs> stocks now. I think that Tupperware is one yeah. of them. Um, but meme stocks are, are one of the, the biggest effects or maybe results of all of these new individual investors coming into the market. I guess the first part of that question would be, why did that happen, right? Where did that come from? And then the second part would be, are there other effects, other impacts to the market that individual investors have had 
outside of meme stocks that maybe we don't talk about as much? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole meme stock phenomenon, and as you mentioned, it's still going on. We saw it this year uh, with regional banks turned into meme stocks, and that Mm -hmm. can actually have an impact on our economy in terms of regional bank lending. We saw it recently with Tupperware, Yellow. Um, In terms of why it happened, I really think it was the perfect storm of, you know, social media is more of a force in investing than it has ever been before. You see information online just snowball and snowball, and, and there's this kind of herd mentality that can draw people into whether it's a political theory or a stock. (laughs) So that really glued a lot of people to stocks like GameStop and AMC. And then this year, AMC and Tupperware, Um, you know, a lot of investors, I think, enjoy following these stocks in part for the camaraderie. They're talking to their friends online about these meme stocks and it becomes almost a social thing. But I think part Part of what drove it is information moves faster than ever, in part because of social media. And then these things can just take on a life of their own in a way that didn't happen in years past. Like this is a significant change in market structure that's occurred as more individual investors have joined the markets and as, you know, the pace of information uh, moves at a different pace, especially as it pertains to investing, which we haven't seen before. Do you think social media is one of the big reasons why the individual investor base grew so much over the last few years? And I mean, there are different theories of that. One of the theories is that we all got locked into our houses for so long, there was nothing else to do. So people went to the market. I I think that probably holds some weight, but I don't know that that can be explained by, I don't know that we can explain everything with that because we had a lot of different things that we could have done in our house. But do you think social media added gas to that fire? Or, or what What was the big attraction? Was it just the market went up? Where did all these people come from? I think social media was a huge part of it. You know, these are people who grew up online, right? Like, I can't tell you how many people I, I interviewed, Liz, who said, um, I picked up trading during the pandemic because I saw, you know, a TikTok video on options trading, or I saw a YouTube video. Or, or I saw a tweet, which was a screenshot of these huge, crazy gains, um, and I wanted to try that. So just anecdotally speaking, like it felt like every single person I was talking with um, was in a Discord trading chat <laughs> or, or, or on Twitter. And you know, we all saw things like buy the dip or stock market start trending on Twitter. So social media is just a way bigger part of investing than it was in the past. And of course, that can be a double-edged sword, right? That can be incredibly risky as well. And I think something a lot of investors need to watch out for because there's a tendency, just like on Instagram, we like to post you know, that perfect picture of us on Instagram on a boat holding a glass of wine. That happens on in terms of investing as well, where sure, people will post their losses, but they want to post those really big gains and show people like what a great trader they are. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Well, and that was going to be the next question is, do you think it's safe that that's how the world works now? And we conducted a survey. There's a one of the questions was basically, where do you get the majority of your investing information? And when you look at the the Gen Z respondents, 91, I think it was 91 percent of Gen Z gets their investment information from social media. And on one hand, I think that's really cool that the world has shifted to that direction and that people are so comfortable and interested and engaged and they're going to use social for educational and wealth building. But it also is kind of scary because there's there's no authority out there controlling the information that's on social media. And to your point, people may post 
their gains and losses, but how do we know that they're being honest about that? How do we know that that's actually verified information? We don't, and I think that's the risk. So do you think that the social media is, the aspect of it is, do the positives outweigh the negatives, I guess is a good way to ask that. Well, I mean, I I love social media, right? I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and I think it really comes down to whom are you following? I think there's undoubtedly a really, really dangerous side where some of the content out there can push you to want to trade more. It can push you to chase those wins that you're seeing other people kind of brag about, um, whether it's through options trades or risky leveraged ETPs. And there can be this bias toward taking action and trading more, which you know has proven to cost investors money rather than make them money. So as with everything else, I think it's so important to, to be wary of whom you're following. Um, the past few years, we've also seen regulators come off of some of these social media schemes online where, where people hosting online communities were, were accused of, of like, you know, engaging in things like pump and dumps. So there's definitely a seedy side to, to you know, the intersection of investing in social media. When you're reporting on this sort of thing and, and when you're doing interviews, do you have a certain tilt that you're trying to get after? Are you trying to uncover a certain side of social media and investing? Or are you trying to uh, encourage? Uh, help me Help me understand basically your objective and, and your perspective of when you're doing interviews. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm sharing now has is just stuff that's come up in interviews repeatedly where you know, some of the top questions I like to ask investors is, hey, where are you getting your investment advice? How did you learn about that trade? You know, if I'm writing about how individual investors are positioning in the markets this year or last year, um, I was asking very similar things like, how are you positioning? What made you what made you put on that trade? Where did you learn about that? And so often social media comes up (laughs) Mm -hmm. where people say, I learned about this um, because I saw it with X influencer or, um, yeah, this, this person on Discord posted it. And yeah, that, that can be, that can be dangerous. So, you know, I think we've written a little bit about the risks of, of social media and investing. Um, but mainly I'm sharing stuff that I just hear again and again, because I'm always trying to find out how people are arriving at these things. So one of the conventional thoughts has always been that the retail trader is really good at top ticking and bottom finding, but in the wrong way. They're really good at getting in last after something's had a big run because of momentum. And they're really good at getting out last because something has fallen so far. Do you think that's still true? Or has the retail investor gotten smarter, gotten quicker, gotten better at seeing what might happen in the future rather than being last to the party, both on the buy and the sell? I don't think they're last to the party at all. And and one thing that really struck me reporting on this crazy stock market crash and rebound during COVID is how many people told me like, when I saw that, that, you know, huge, that huge dip, it's too big to call it a dip, that huge crash in March, 2020, I bought stocks because you know what? I remember what happened after the last financial crisis. I saw, you know, stocks go up for a decade. I've noticed that after small dips, um, the market tends to rebound. So I think I think the retail investor is more by the dip focus than they were in the past, um, just because they've seen they've seen this play out over the past fifteen years or so. And 
I don't know, a lot of times institutional investors have told me, oh, retail investors are piling in, this must be the top, and then the market keeps going up. <laughs> so so I, I just don't think that's true at all. Yeah, and actually, I would I would agree with you. I think they've gotten better, not even they, I think we have gotten better as individuals, partially because of what I mentioned before, there's just more information available, so there's more education out there. But I think also individual investors have chosen to consume it and chosen to learn from it. And even if we just think about the the members that we have at SoFi on our invest platform, more than 60% of them are between the ages of 20 and 40. So some of those are investors who are literally just beginning their investing journey. But a good number of them, if you're be in between 30 and 40 and you've been investing since you started working, you're no longer a newbie. You may not be in the industry. You may not be an expert at it. You may not be exposed to it on a daily basis, but you're not a newbie anymore. And maybe the last 10 years have have taught you, or maybe since the global financial crisis, it's taught you to pay closer attention. And it, there were some little hiccups in there, but the idea of, okay, I want to take more control of my own wealth and of my own future, I think has a big role in this as well. There were so many people in the global financial crisis that felt wronged and felt like the wool was pulled over their eyes. They didn't understand everything that was going on in their own portfolio. There was a lack of transparency. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the tranches and all the different things that happened during that. And then there was this idea of we're going to fight back and I'm going to make sure that I have all the transparency and that I know exactly what the fees are. I know exactly what I'm invested in. And this thirst for learning in order to never have to do that again. And I think that's that's a big part of it. And people using social media, I guess, to get that information is fine. It's I think there's probably better ways to make sure that things are, are good information, but I think that that plays a big role. That's such an interesting point because, you know, as I said, so many investors pointed to the last financial crisis to me as a reason they were buying stocks the past few years. Like, I don't want to miss out on something like that again. I saw I saw what happened. Or you know, I was silly and I sold stocks during during mm. the 2008 crisis. And boy, did I learn my lesson. I'm not doing that again. So I think buy the dip just has taken on a life of its own. It's become like this mantra that, that hordes of retail investors really do stand behind. But I also think we can see traces of the financial crisis in the meme, in the meme stock craze as well, where, where people were saying, you know, like during all these institutional investors have gotten rich. This is our our time to fight back. So it is kind of interesting to see it seep through um, different parts of, of the retail investing base. Yeah. I, we've covered this a little bit, but the idea of the democratization of investing, that's been a pretty hot topic over the last few years since COVID and, and since the rise of the individual investor. I would love your thoughts on whether it's presented really great opportunities for individuals, or if it's something that is dangerous in some cases, where do you fall on this democratization of investing? Well, it sounds great, right? Yeah. <laughs> democratization <laughs> of investing sounds great. And I, you know, I think people should invest, people should build wealth. And I think that is such a great concept that, that I would encourage, um, and I think the stock market can be a great way to do that. I think when often democratization of investing um, 
it's it's kind of come alongside this trend toward lower fees and people say that investing is being democratized because it's cheaper or trading is free and there's just nothing free about those trades anytime someone a brokerage tells you that you know there's no cost to your trading there are always hidden costs the reason um, that your trades are quote unquote free is because you know, a very um, sophisticated institutional trader wants to trade against them. And they're going to be paying that retail brokerage in order to trade against you. That's why your trades are free. So they're being subsidized uh, by someone else. Um, but that's that's the issue that I have with this whole idea of democratization of investing. And it's not really, it's not really an issue. I just think that sometimes that conversation, um, it is tied to free trades, which I think is a very misleading way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do how do investors learn about what the hidden fees are? Where where do they go to figure that out? Because it's not it might be in some of the fine print, but some of what you're describing is just dynamics in the industry and how big firms work with one another. How can an individual find that out? Yeah. And, you know, I do think there has been a little bit more attention to uh, there's been a little bit more attention paid to it the past few years. Um during the meme stock craze and all of that, um, I would say Google payment for order flow, you know, like the Wall Street Journal has written at length about payment for order flow and, and how it's really been booming the past few years is more retail traders have been entering markets. Um, and that's good for professional trading firms. Um, you know, it's a huge moneymaker. It's a huge moneymaker for, for these retail brokerages. And I also think it depends on what type of a retail trader are you? This is probably more important to you if you're trading frequently, which can be money losing. Um, but if you're buying and holding, you know, ETFs over a longer period of time, then you need to be less concerned about those costs just because you're not incurring them as much. Right. All right. I'm going to go back to social media for a second, because yes. I think I think one of the things that's important to cover, if you have a strong opinion on this, I encourage you to share it. Is there a platform that's a better than other platforms? Or are there a couple platforms that are better? Because people use Twitter, or I guess we call it X now. People use yeah. X, people use Facebook, Instagram. There's Reddit, there's blogging sites. There's, there is no shortage of now social media platforms. And even, even the trading platforms generate their own content. So wh what's better? Is there a better or worse? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because I've seen awful information on all of them. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But there's also good information, right? I mean, it's it's a really different... Yeah. And nobody has enough time to sit, at least I certainly don't, to sit and monitor seven different social media platforms and try to mosaic them all together into making a decision. I I mean, it's it's overwhelming. You know, I do think I have seen the most credible sources on Twitter or X as it's mm -hmm. now called, you know, that's where I see the most even keeled voices sharing fact based information, um, on, on Reddit, like obviously there's wall street bets, um, and all those other platforms. Um, but I just, I haven't seen as many credible sources on there. So in my experience, I think Twitter does have, have a, Twitter is a great source of information. If you want to hear from even keeled people. Okay, one of the last questions I want to I want to ask you is I think we've come a long way as an industry. Yeah. I think we've come a long way as individual investors. I think that 
college kids graduating now into the world and getting their first job and starting to invest are in a much better position than college kids of 20 years ago. Everything is more accessible. They have multiple options of where to do it. They have plenty of free information available to them. They're not forced into their parents' version of managing money. So I think that they're set up a lot more for success today than they were before. However, there has to still be ways that the industry is falling short. And you can either tell me where you think the industry is still falling short or where you think perhaps the biggest changes and innovations will come in the next five to 10 years to better serve the retail investor. I think one thing that really does not serve the retail investor and where I ha- where I have seen individual investors record some of their biggest losses is in just super, super complex products. Like I think a lot of mm. retail investors think like, oh, if I don't understand something, it's because I, I didn't study finance. I wasn't a math major. But no, if something is just so complicated that like, you know, there's all this jargon being thrown at you, just stay away. (laughs) I'm thinking of one instance in which I was reporting on this mutual fund, which was being marketed as something that would shield investors from volatility. And it seemed to be performing really, really well during the March 2020 COVID crash. And then it recorded all these inflows because people thought, oh my God, the world is going crazy. This thing will be less volatile than the market. It ended up, um, it ended up being a fraud, which obviously you cannot predict. But it was um, it was based on this really complicated strategy using derivatives and variant swaps, and um, and it was just really sad hearing these stories of retail investors who had turned to this product that they did not understand because it promised to do something that seemed so magical, and of course, um, it was too good to be true, right? Um, so I would just caution. I would caution individual investors to just not get wrapped up in things that that are more complex than they need to be. And and I think that is one area where the industry should do better um, in terms of in terms of complexity. Yeah, I think a, a, a way to put that too is if you don't understand where the return opportunity is coming from, you almost certainly don't understand where the risk is. And if you can't understand both of those things, it doesn't mean that understanding risk avoids risk. There's still risk, but you want to understand what type of risk it is. Because if you enter an environment where that particular investment, you know it's exposed to more risk than other investments, you can make a much better decision about whether or not you want to stay in it. And then one other thing that I like to say, and I think you probably can share this sentiment, if somebody is explaining an opportunity to you or an investment to you, and they can't explain it in simple terms they probably don't understand it themselves. Yeah. In which case, you're not going to be able to understand it in that conversation. Probably steer clear. At, at best, take a pause and do some more research on your own, but at worst, steer clear, right? And just save yourself because as soon as it gets complicated and confusing, that's where you start to make a mistake. It, it's so funny that that you said that because I started at the journal um, covering the options market, which is an incredibly complex area. And when I first took on this job, I was like, I would get self-conscious because I didn't understand, you know, the trades and the strategies that sometimes people on the phone, sophisticated derivatives traders 
were explaining to me. Um, and now I don't feel self-conscious. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about if you can't explain it to me right, <laughs> rather exactly. than I should be embarrassed that, that I don't understand you. Uh, exactly. So that is yeah. such a good point. All right. So now we are going to do a new segment. I think I did this in one episode last season, but we're going to do a new segment. I'm going to do this every episode called The Hot Minute. And I'm just going to fire some questions at you and you're going to answer them as short and quickly as possible. And then we're going to finish up. Okay. Okay. All right. First one. Are meme stocks here to stay or are they a passing fad? Here to stay. Wow. I'm not sure I expected you to say that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, you'll still have plenty to write about. Uh, All right. Second question. What are retail investors getting right that they haven't before? Um, I think a lot of retail investors are realizing that they know more than the pros, which is right. Ooh, that's a juicy one. I like that one. And lastly, what do you think is the best resource for retail investors? The Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Slightly biased opinion. (laughs) All right, we'll take it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I think that this was a wonderful inaugural episode. I'm so excited to drop it. And I wish you all the best. I cannot wait to talk to you again. Maybe when this next meme stock craze has died down and then we can try to figure out what's going to happen after that. I would love that. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our inaugural episode of season three. A few things that I thought were interesting about what Gunjan said. One of the things that surprised me the most is that she felt pretty confident that meme stocks are here to stay. So obviously we saw that first surge in meme stocks back in 2021. We've seen a recent resurgence in that theme, maybe with different stocks, but the theme is still around, and she thinks that it's going to stick around. The second thing that I thought was really important uh, as a takeaway from her is that retail investors are not the dumb money anymore, and they're not last to the party. Things have changed, and their sentiment is now much more about buying the dip. I think we've all heard that phrase many, many times over the last couple years. And they've got this mentality to come in, swoop in at low prices, and ride the wave up. Obviously, we're not sure that anybody can get that entirely right, but it's good to know that the retail investor, from her standpoint, has gotten much, much better at that sort of timing, which is so, so difficult. And lastly... No matter how things are advertised, many of the trades that happen, she wanted to point out, are not entirely free. There can be hidden costs. There are things that people can do research on. Make sure that you know what is buried inside all of the accounts that you may have. And there are lots of resources available for free on the web to learn about all of those different hidden fees. So make sure you're doing your research on what you own. Make sure you're also doing your research on the accounts that you're using to own those assets. Again, I look forward to bringing you more episodes very, very soon. And I am so excited to roll out the rest of season three. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Carter Wogan, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal. <laughs>